Initially, when I was a chef and becoming owning a restaurant, I never thought that it would open up so many doors as what it has. And you've been able to contribute and be part of a community that I never sensed ever before. So just, I don't know whether it's the area that we're in or if it's just the hospitality community in general. And I think that just extremely generous industry where people support each other and learn from each other rather than being competitors everyone's sort of in it together and it makes a really vibrant food scene this is the crackling i'm anthony huckstep most restaurants are suburban local hubs of the community that feed those within a stone's throw accessible nourishing food and good times but some restaurants land in a suburb and change dining for locals forever with an offering they've never before experienced. When Claire Van Vuren first opened Bloodwood in Newtown, all she hoped for was a restaurant of her own that got the support of the local community. But little did she know her restaurant would trigger the beginnings of one of the country's most vibrant, diverse and creative food hubs. Well, Claire, you've had Bloodwood for over a decade now. It's a hell of a name for a restaurant. It sounds like a TV series. How did Bloodwood start? <laughs> yeah, it's a controversial name. Um, Ten years is a long time to have a restaurant as well, so we feel very proud of that. But Bloodwood is an uh, eucalyptus tree, so it's a native tree, and it's a eucalypt that drips bright red sap down onto the um, floor of the forest and it was just really striking when we were trying to come up with a restaurant name. It's really hard to come up with a name and people always have different ideas and being on King Street you kind of wanted to be edgy and capture lots of things and I don't know, we just went with a organic tree which was quite controversial at the time because it's blood and wood so lots of people thought we were only going to be serving cuts of raw meat and various things like that. We often get called Bollywood as well, which is interesting. <laughs> but, yeah, essentially it's a eucalyptus tree. And originally when we opened, the customer brought us in a jar of the sap and a jar of the little um, sort of seeds that fall off. And the funniest thing was when a customer spread it all over his bread and ate the sap, he thought it was part of the table. So it was quite funny. Well, Bloodwood started back in 2009 and at that time Newtown had many restaurants but it wasn't really making a name for itself as a destination for great restaurants but Bloodwood sort of was the beginnings of a new wave of restaurants for that area. Why, why did you choose Newtown? Yeah, so what we found, sort of most chefs that were trying to work in anywhere decent had to, they all lived in the inner west and then travelled to the eastern suburbs to work and after work you'd sort of drive back to the townie or the Oxford at those days it was and one of the pubs in the inner west and sort of sit there and go like it would be great if we could just walk home from work or you know why isn't there any good places where we live so we kind of I'd lived in the area for ages I went to Sydney uni so I knew it really well and we just couldn't understand why it was just primarily a cheap eats destination it didn't make any sense so we took a punt and opened up and obviously made the right decision. Tell us a bit about the restaurant. There was uh, quite a few of you involved and that's changed a bit over the years. What is what is Bloodwood and, and what sort of cuisine are you cooking there? Yeah, so originally the concept was really simple. I came from Claude's and I was there with um, Joe Ward and Mitch Grady. The other thre um, three chefs also worked at Claude's and we wanted to do something completely opposite. So take away the chef's jackets, number one, put the kitchen right in the middle of the restaurant so chefs could be 
involved. I was sick of being right at the back and as a chef you don't get that visual interaction with customers. So put the kitchen right in the centre, open plan, pump up the music, make it really vibrant. So kind of breaking down every idea of what a traditional restaurant was at that stage. No tablecloths, like bright red tables and then also, um, yeah, just completely changing up. In terms of the food, we wanted it to be essentially staff meals. So everything that you played with in your travels, it didn't have to follow a specific rule, didn't have to be too technical. It was just supposed to be using good produce, delicious and approachable. That was the concept. Can you run us through some of the dishes that have starred on the menu over the years to get, to give us an idea of what, you know, what you do there? Yeah, so um, a lot of the dishes, I think there's three of them that have stayed since day one and as much as I hate it, the polenta chips, <laughs> I keep trying to take them off and every sort of chef that works with me says, you're insane, like you, they just money makers and people come there for them. So I would love to never serve another polenta chip again, but the backlash of taking them off, <laughs> so that's number one. And then also there's a chickpea pancake, which we just keep changing the toppings on because we just have – just sell so many of them each week and people come for a quick lunch or a bite and it's vegan, it's healthy, it's all of that sort of stuff. So they're the main two dishes that have been on for 10 years but, you know, you can't change it too much otherwise you lose your base of regular customers who have come in there particularly for that. So it was also two great dishes during COVID when you could easily transform them into takeaways. So, yeah, they serve their purpose. I don't. I can tell you honestly, I don't eat too many of them, but <laughs> <laughs> customers love them, so they're staying. And that's one thing that you learn as a chef owning a business is you have to sort of make decisions based on money, which when you first start out doesn't come into the play. You're just very sort of ego, head-driven chef, and then gradually business takes over and you think, Oh, well, that one is a really great moneymaker. I may as well just keep it on. Essentially, that's the point. And I think that's the main reason why 10 years later we're still doing well. Has your food changed a lot over that decade, given sort of that money focus and also that appetite to um, be creative as well? Yeah, I think you also develop the confidence. Like when you first start off having your own restaurant, you're sort of worried about where your peers sit, sit and how you viewed and all of that sort of stuff and then gradually you just forget about it and you just start to enjoy it a lot more you start cooking for yourself and for your other chefs and for regular customers and you put on dishes that reflect where you've been or where you've grown so it becomes a lot easier and a lot more enjoyable but yeah for me I think my food's simplified I think I focus a lot more on sort of raw ingredients and not trying to focus too much on um, technique or concepts it's just a lot cleaner. How did you get interested in food in the first place? You were born in South Africa. Is, has that had an influence on your life uh, in food? Yeah, definitely. So a South African family, obviously we're very meat focused. There's lots of brise, there's lots of built on, there's hunting. Like I've got childhood memories of um, a ping pong table having a, a buck on it, getting wow. stripped open, and <laughs> full of blood and ripped open for biltong and then they hang it on the washing line during winter and it's just kind of normal process in um, Joba growing up as a kid is that it's going to be a lot of meat around um, Borovos and all of those sorts of stuff and then when we immigrated to Australia you don't want to lose track of all of that stuff so I think my brother and I have always been super interested in food so trying to recreate 
making biltong cages at home and trying to make bourrevos. Well, as a family, we always had um, mariwas, which was a big witch's pot, like a, a poiki pot where you do like a whole day slow cooking, which comes out of Zimbabwe where my auntie's from. So lots of influence of that coming through as a kid and just always focused on a whole event of a meal. That was kind of the, the main deal was cooking. You mentioned that you went to Sydney Uni. Was was there a chance that you were never going to be a chef? <laughs> yeah, I was meant to be a successful artist, like a, like many chefs. So after finishing high school, I went to um, SCA, Sydney Art School, did four years there as a painter, and I loved it. And I ended up with a studio in Surrey Hills and doing what every artist does is like going to shows, making little shows, but you never make any money. So at the same time of doing that, I was working hospital jobs, pretty much everything, starting in like ice cream making, working in the RSL club, kino operator, pokey operator, like whatever you can. And I always just looked at the chefs. And this was particularly at DYRSL where I was, and I just thought they looked so cool. They were like a gang. They were always really tight. They also earned heaps of money. Like, you know, they could – it was the only job where you didn't need super amounts of education to earn decent money if you put your head down. So I thought that looked pretty cool. But yeah, at that stage, I still persisted trying to be an artist for quite a while. So and I even tried to do um, advertising but just didn't fit into the culture. But hospitality certainly um, kept calling your name. So, so when was that moment that you – decided to join the gang and become a chef? It was. It involved a little bit of uh, heart romance as well. I met someone who lived in Canberra and was in the press gallery, so I had to make the move from um, Sydney to Canberra. So I thought it was a great opportunity to change careers because in Canberra I knew my living expenses could be slightly less. So after a really long trip to Greece and on the Greek islands, I decided to leave art behind and became a first-year apprentice in Canberra at um Rubicon in Griffiths shops. So that was certainly, yeah, a big change. It was a super change leaving all your friends and Newtown and all of that and heading into sort of sleepy Canberra into a bunch of boys in a really tiny kitchen in the middle of cold Canberra winter. But, yeah, it was good. And I also went to TAFE there, which was an interesting experience. Yeah, certainly made me feel old amongst all the young 16 and 17-year-old Canberra boys into um, Formula One and go-karting and <laughs> bicycles and stuff. But I really enjoyed it. So it was fun. Definitely the right decision. What was it like as a, as a woman in hospitality in those days? I know you're heavily involved with women in hospitality. And um, can you paint a picture of what it was like for you in those early days, just starting off your career and compared to what it's like now? Yeah, I think for me I had a head start because I wasn't coming straight from school. So I was already, you know, I was older than the boys. I was quite confident and I was definitely sort of a natural leader. So even coming in as a first-year apprentice, I never ever took any any shit, I guess. Like I was just sort of, you know, you, you hit the ground running and you know instantly that you're not going to follow the normal um trajectory of a chef like it's going to be fast tracked for you because you're mature you're passionate you've done some prior knowledge you probably don't need to um, start from the beginning and learning the basic cutting and all of that sort of stuff but the boys you just sort of have have fun with them you never let them get to you try and educate them and make sure that they don't become the bad chefs I think it's changed a lot since since those days 
I never really encountered anything too bad and I made sure that if I did, I either didn't work at that workplace or either took someone aside and made sure that they realised that that was unacceptable and it's kind of a really nice position to be in now where we don't have to talk about that quite as much. Like the industry seems to have listened and same with all industries across and I feel like we're all swaying in the right direction, which is very nice in terms of treatment and especially women and all of that sort of stuff. Obviously it's it's not in a perfect place yet, but I feel like it's heading in the right direction, especially in terms of um, work life as a chef, hours and exploitation and all of that sort of stuff. So it's not just female issues, it's the whole industry as a whole. I feel like we're listening and trying to improve it to make sure that it continues to flourish. You mentioned briefly uh, that you spent some time at Claude's. What's been some of the main influences on your journey as a chef that changed direction for you? Yeah, that restaurant certainly had a huge influence on me. Um, It was the first time I really, like, I cooked under Chewy Lee Look and her experience of French food with Malaysian influences was really interesting and just being in that restaurant with the history and like going upstairs to the pastry kitchen and it still had all of the original stuff and you really feel your sense of time and place working in a place like that and you have a a real sense of pride and respect of who's come through there and all the great chefs and where they've moved on to do um, what they've done after that and where they've ended up and all of the chefs that came through have even just worked in in like larder section have all done amazing stuff like for me I feel like you learn immense amounts of knowledge from being in small kitchens because if you're someone who wants to be like a sponge you can sort of watch all sections at the same time as doing your own and you can just sort of supersede your your learning so it's really great I feel like yeah the three years that I spent there I learned immense amounts about food can you tell us about any of the dishes from those days that you either have nightmares about or inspired you moving forward? Uh, one of the – because we used to do a lot of different dinners, like um, Chewy was very um, motivated and did lots of different um, one-off events and different dinners and I remember we had to stuff a, a huge fish. Like the, it was much too big to fit in the fish kettle but she wanted to keep it entirely – entirely whole so a tiny pin pin bone incision underneath and sort of surgically extracting all of the the insides and boning it out and then stuffing it with all these amazing treasures Chinese treasures and then steaming it and just the care and time and patience that it took to do something it was you can definitely see why restaurants struggled at that because you just had the whole team (laughs) so many hours and so much money spent on produce, just the care and effort and it was, yeah, amazing to to witness some stuff like that. You mentioned Bloodwood was inspired by a connection to nature and your ethos these days really starts with the ingredient. Can you tell us about some of the producers that you work with or use and, and the connection that you have and how important they are to what you do in the restaurant? I think if you're any restaurant at the moment, it's, that's got to be your focus or any industry, you've got to be mindful of sustainability and all of that stuff. So right from the get-go 10 years ago, it wasn't that important or people didn't sort of demand it. So we always made a rule. You had to use small producers wherever possible, local suppliers, and follow all of those rules. So it really made you reach out 
and sort of seek people that were around the local area. <clears throat> and we're so fortunate in the food bowl area that we're in that you've just got to go an hour down south and you've got beautiful poultry and pork and things like that. And then you've, you, you know, you go north in New South Wales and you've got incredible pork. Um, so over the years we've, we've collaborated with, like, I can't even mention how many suppliers and producers, and especially in um, alcohol, it's the same thing, like, just it's it's all around you. But at the moment, the producer that sort of supplied us all through COVID and everything is actually coming out of Queensland where we've used Borrowdale um, pork endlessly. <laughs> so they had a constant supply chain. So we just managed to keep it up because a lot of there was a bit of difficulty in getting produce. So we sort of stuck with someone that could just keep getting um, enough produce down. So that was a good relationship and, yeah, managed to squeeze out lots of many delicious dishes with their pork and they're based up in Toowoomba. What What do you do on the menu? Do you uh, get whole pigs in or do, the, do you work with them for specific cuts? Was it, can you tell us a bit about some of the cuts that you might have used and what you do in the kitchen? At the moment I don't have any whole cuts but, yeah, certainly especially with um, pork stars I've cooked numerous, many, many whole pigs and that's super enjoyable. The last cut that we had was uh, pork belly because, yeah, it was just something that you put it on the menu, you can guarantee that it's going to sell. Previously to that was ribs and it's kind of, I always call it the pork belly and rib phenomenon. If you put it on, everyone's going to constantly order it. So (laughs) for me, it's got about a month lifespan and then you get sick of it because they just don't order anything else. It's like people have this focus on on a rib or a or pork belly so it's like you do little teasers of it and put it on my personal favorite cut is always pork neck i love using that for grilling curries just anything that we can get a hand on being the size of our restaurant it's quite hard to constantly take whole animals but yeah also love the hock it's also a personal favorite pretty much yeah any any cut You've got to be creative and that's the fun as you progress down your chefing career is you just sort of ordering things that you can play around with and come up with dishes sort of that you haven't really thought about and you can just see where it takes you and when the produce arrive. Well, the belly and the ribs are something that we see on menus quite frequently and done pretty well across the board. But how do you manage a hock and what do you do with it? Well, the last hock that I had, I ended up doing um, croquettes out of it. So put the hocks, slow cook them down with white wine and onions and garlic and all of that sort of stuff. And then shredded the meat, made a really thick bechamel where I added in not only um, cheese and all of that, but I added in the pork stock, the reduced uh, wine and glaze into that. So it's super rich. And then cut up the chunks of meat into chunks Chuck up, cut up big chunks of mafra cheddar, rolled it into that and then made these nice little golf balls, double crumbed them and fried them. And as you crack them open, sort of the pork juices and the cheese melted together and opened up. And then at the time that I had those on, it was also truffle special. So if you wanted to be doubly decadent, you can <laughs> shave some truffles on top. But, yeah, they walked out the door. So they'll they'll come back on. As, the, as it warmed up, I had to take them off the menu it's also hard to keep up with um, demand. So for me, I seem to have this strange phenomenon. If the dish sells too well, I take it off, it's just <laughs> which my restaurant manager always queries, but I'm like, no, I must remove it. It's too popular. But 
it just keeps you focused, I guess. Then you have to think of something else and gradually otherwise you, you get stuck in, in your way. So that's that's been the last few years of cooking. If something does really well, I take it off. <laughs> And then try and think of another dish that will come up and do um, equally as well. But yeah, definitely that that croquette was with the hocks was one of my most memorable things. When I talk about it, I start drooling. So it's obviously a good one. Yeah, I imagine not many of them left actually left the kitchen. Does the chefs fatten up during that period? <laughs> yeah, that's the good thing about making it too rich. You can only have a handful, and then you're done. But Certainly, I think that's how you change the menu is when the chefs are sick of eating it or the sick of the smell of it is, you know, it's time to go. So I can't work with hot chips. That would be my my downfall. Anyway, if they served fries, I'd be gone. <laughs> the menu at, at Bloodwood uh, crosses many borders and you're a dab hand at using so many different sort of spices and fragrances. Uh, but you're also, your beverage menu, it's one of the most extraordinary beer menus in Australia um, and very global. Can you tell us a bit about that sort of global uh, aesthetic that you have to the whole experience? Well, we were just very fortunate because we were a restaurant that didn't have, you know, financial backers behind us. We could do essentially whatever we wanted. So we put our money on some other young guns that were just trying to learn and expand and during that period we employed Gabby Webster who's now at Icebergs and won so many awards so she kind of took control of our drinks list and she just said do you trust me to do whatever and we just said yeah full full trust as long as it's sustainable organic go for it so she was kind of the initial sort of person who changed the list to what it is today but yeah just thinking back and having all of those amazing winemakers coming through and um, producers and beer suppliers over the years. It's been certainly a monumental journey. But in terms of our beer list, at the time, in probably 2010, when you'd go to a restaurant, you'd get the option of two or three beers. They'd always include like a Peroni and a Crown Lager or just really boring beers. And it didn't really make sense that wine was progressing so swiftly and it was changing in all directions, but beers still weren't really on any list and every list was the same. It seemed like you were getting locked into contracts from big companies and we were just like, no, we're not, we don't do any contracts, we don't do any of that stuff, we just list what we want. So we sort of became a, a beer list of just listing all of these beers that you couldn't get anywhere else and you could sit down, pour it into a fancy beer glass and enjoy it with your friends. So over the years we've had some crazy beers come through. Sort of calmed it down a little bit now after the craft beer um revolution sort of beers are everywhere so that's slightly lessening in the restaurant again and our beer list's a little bit more manageable rather than a few pages of ridiculous beers but yeah it has been fun also to serve the beer nerds over the years and the interesting bunches of guys coming through and beer dinners and fun they're a really fun bunch so what do you love about what you do is there a memorable experience that bloodwood has given you that you never expected yeah, that's such a such a huge question because I don't initially when I was a chef and becoming owning a restaurant, I never thought that it would open up so many doors as, of what as what it has, and you've been able to contribute and be part of a community that I never sensed ever before. So just I don't know whether it's the area that we're in or if it's just the hospitality community in general, and I think that the second answer is probably more true. It's just extremely generous industry where people 
support each other and learn from each other rather than being competitors everyone's sort of in it together and it makes a really vibrant food scene and I it just opens up doors you get to meet idols that you never thought you'd meet cooking like night carriage work night markets you're sort of amongst the peers and there's never any judgment it's such a amazing industry where everyone just sort of helps each other out if you're doing something interesting or and ethical and well you're sort of adored by everyone so it's really nice and also for me personally I've been able to get involved in community projects with homeless like women in hospitality events art projects like just endless what's come out of cooking even just even doing a podcast like you never assume who would be interested to to listen but there's always a market and people are always coming to all of the events coming to the talks coming to all of that stuff so it's it's really sort of heartwarming you've been involved in the women in hospitality mentorship program and we briefly touched on that earlier but tell us about that and why is it so important yeah, so I'm one of the founding um, board members of Women in Hospitality. So we try and nurture women through the industry across the board. And But my area specifically is the mentor program. We launched that uh, last year and it was extremely successful and it just keeps growing. But I think, you know, matching an up-and-coming person in hospitality with someone who's been there and done that, it's a beautiful thing to watch because you have all of these incredible people that are not nearing the ends of their careers, but they've got so much knowledge, so many experiences, so much to give, but they don't know how to get it out there. And all you have to do is simply put them in contact with someone who's who's just wants to absorb all of that and want, can learn and experience what they have. And you put together a sort of time frame, some goals, and there's some structure. And then six months to a year later, you're finding that you've forged these great friendships you've helped someone get a new position or you've helped someone achieve a goal that they've that were trying to previously it's just very satisfying to watch and we also get to meet some incredible women along the way so also involved in another um, female group called war which is um, females who own restaurants it's women in restaurants and that one's much more pinpointed but for me that's all about the business side and working with these powerhouses in the industries and that's long day conferences where they just teach you so much stuff like I think as a chef you're always sort of on the back foot with running a business because you don't sit in front of a computer and um, have a whole admin team behind you but I've learned so much from these women so there's also the generosity that if you have any problem you can text any one of them or email and your questions answered without any concern so it's a really impressive and loving group. 10 years is extraordinary for uh, a restaurant what's what's been some of the biggest surprises and um, challenges along the way well one of the best well not a surprise but one of the best things is that how Newtown evolved into such a incredible food scene so that I wouldn't say we didn't expect it but we would never have expected it to become what it is so you've got so many incredible restaurants and sometimes you find yourself that you very <laughs> you don't leave the inner west for a couple of weeks because you're eating at all of these places and there's breweries and all of that sort of stuff. Um, it's interesting to see the effects of um, the media and marketing on food food industry and how it changes um, trends and all of that sort of stuff. I think over 10 years you get a good sense of, of trending and what food 
pellets are doing and how they're involved and that sort of stuff. So it's nice to get a, a longer snap snapshot. You can see, you can pretty much predict what's going to happen at Bloodwood right down to within a few hundred dollars um, season to season because we've been pretty consistent since day one and it's nice to sort of get a pattern. And in terms of negatives, I would say MasterChef had a bit of a bad <laughs> moment where I think uh, customers became too critical and expected too much out of restaurants and were very judgmental and also online reviewing got a little bit out of line with bloggers and all of that for a little while. But I feel like that's settled down. In a, in a way, COVID's made everyone reevaluate, and I feel like we're coming out the other side into a really beautiful period for food venues in Sydney and maybe Australia. Given the lessons that you've learned running a business over the last decade, what do you say to people out there just starting in the industry? Yeah, my number one thing would be don't be too proud to change directions or models along the way and you've got to continue to grow. That's number one. The hardest thing is going to be staff. You're going to go through hundreds of staff but you've got to just sort of learn to manage each person individually. Otherwise, if you if you get too stuck in your way, you're going to struggle but you've just got to keep learning and make sure that you learn from everyone that you employ because every single person that comes through the venue brings something that you didn't have before and you've got to sort of watch and watch them closely and just take little bits from everyone and in the end you become this beautiful whole piece because each person that's come through has brought, brought something else and changed a system or learnt from another venue and said, hey, perhaps we can do this better here or something like that. So. Number one thing is just keep learning. If you get too stagnant, you've got to do something about it. If you hate what you're doing, you've got to stop doing it because it's a long, hard game. And the number one thing is to stay happy with it. Otherwise, it becomes yeah not true and customers can see that and I think they respond to it. So, yeah, keep positive and keep doing it. Now, I know that you like to um, take dishes off the menu when they are successful and um, belly and ribs you mentioned earlier, which are incredibly popular cuts. But what is the secret to cooking those? What, what sort of dishes have you done with those in the past? Well, the ribs, just classic. The last ribs that we had on was a sort of Asian red braise cooked for really uh, long and slow. Then you take them out portion them all up and they're chucked on the hibachi with a really nice sticky glaze that you've reduced all of the um, cooking liquor and added some other spices and stuff and then we finished them with a lot of um, really nice chili oil and some with some Szechuan in there so it's quite spicy. Um, yeah, very messy and very sticky and oily so perfect for ribs and you can just sort of suck the meat off the bone. Um, the last pork belly dish... That was, I'm trying to remember, I always, as soon as I take it off, I forget what I did. <laughs> um, that one I did a salt crust. So I'm kind of over the years cooking crackling when we don't have the kitchen set up. So at Bloodwood we don't have a combi oven, so we have this really ancient oven which is very uneven in temperature. So I'd always find that when you're trying to achieve perfect crackle, one side would always burn slightly before the other side and you'd constantly having to turn it round and round. So just decided I was going to start doing a centimetre salt crust on top of the the belly, let it sort of cook 
on a rack with a tiny bit of water steams, keeps it really moist. And then once this, um, the belly is perfectly cooked, I rip the salt crust off and it stays in its whole form, throw that away, crank the oven up a bit, and then you just finish the top and the moist, the belly stays so succulent and juicy and then the crackling's perfect, so it sort of just all bubbles up. But, yeah, I thought that was a foolproof way when you didn't have a perfect oven to get crackling. And then um, we take the crackling off, um, kept that and broke, broke it into nice, beautiful shards because everyone had to get the equal piece. Otherwise, you have tables that are very <laughs> you know, argumentative. So we decided to portion it for people because especially large groups, which we do so frequently at Bloodwood, you kind of have to assist them. Otherwise, there's some, you know, everyone always says, I didn't get my bit. So you, you make sure that you allocate that. Take the pork belly out and we pressed it overnight into perfect little um, flat cubes and then cut it up into nice strips and then chuck that on the hibachi onto a bit of coal and smoke. That was quite good. Yeah, very popular, but having a rest. Well, you've had an extraordinary decade with Bloodwood. What does the next five to ten years look for you and the restaurant? Yeah, well, we missed our 10th birthday in March, so um, 11th we're going to celebrate a big party um, and I think it's just a new lease on life. I feel like it takes the pressure off when you've made a huge milestone like that and you're still going strong. So I think it's kind of going to just be sort of small, smooth sailing, enjoying what we do, focus on the fun stuff, change it up regularly and keep fresh and, yeah, keep inspired, keep doing events, keep relationships with all the restaurants and just keep looking after your local community. That's where we're headed. That's always been a key to Bloodwood is that sense of local community. How vital has that been to the success of Bloodwood over the years? No, it's essential. I think it's it's completely essential to know the area that you're working in and feeding. Not only does it ensure that you've got regular customers that know that you can come and you know their name, you know what they like, all of that sort of stuff. And we've still got customers that have been there since day one um, attending, so that's nice in itself and they become really good friends. But also just knowing your local community, the shops around you, the area. Like for us, it's the neighbourhood centre that we're always heavily involved in and the Asylum Seeker Centre and just making sure that if they need anything, you're ready to send extra food if they need or cater Christmas parties and just forms a sense of community. And we sort of did that group with the Newtown locals where we formalised it and all got together. But unfortunately, our businesses all sort of took lives of their own and life just got away from us so, that kind of stalled, but you've got to continue to do it in your own essence. And I think everyone has. It's just that you're too busy to get together and and do it together. But, yeah, local community, knowing your regulars, supporting the primary schools and high schools and PNCs, and it's all part of the process. And I think restaurants play a really important role in the community and I think you need to know that when you own one and make sure that you look after them because they're the ones that will look after you. Well, Bloodwood just became, you know, one of the best uh, local hubs of uh, a community um, compared to any restaurant in Australia. It's just been extraordinary for uh, the people in, in Newtown. I know you don't like cooking the pork belly, but by the sound of that dish, I hope I hope it's back on the menu soon next time I'm in town. <laughs> <laughs> no, it will be. Claire, thank you so much for your time on The Crackling. Um, extraordinary. And please keep in touch and we'll talk again soon. No, thank you. This is The Crackling, 
a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.